Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at ProclaimKC.org. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 18. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but the toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You may be seated. Yeah. This is a unique experience, right? (laughs) That's cool. You know, um, growing up, it was interesting, my, my dad and both of my grandparents, all three of them, all worked uh, at the same exact factory growing up. And I would listen to their conversations as a kid. You, you know, you overhear or you kind of listen into the conversations of your parents or of the adults, and I would listen into the conversations my dad would have with my grandpa or with my other grandpa, and, and at times it was as if they were speaking in code. You, you ever had that experience? Someone, uh, you're around two people who work in the same industry, and they use certain phrases and acronyms and, you know, words that you're just like, I don't even, I don't know what you're talking about right now. See, the factory the factory, as a kid, the factory was like a whole different world to me. Behind its fences and its gatehouse, behind its big bay doors all along the side, behind its smokestacks, completely cut off from the rest of, the, of life was this, this place my dad worked. The only thing that ever came home from the factory was the smell of rubber and usually a bad attitude, right? 
For many of you, up until about five months ago, there was a certain separation between uh, work life and the rest of life. For some of you, maybe more. For some of you, maybe less. But you'd leave the house in the morning, and then you'd flip that switch, right, to work mode. On my way to work. Flip the switch. Work mode. Now, for you stay-at-homers, let's not leave you out either. Perhaps your kids or your spouse would typically be gone during the day, and now all of a sudden they were home, and they're all up in your business, and your routine, and your schedule, and the things you do, disrupting it. Either way, our work life can become quite detached from the rest of our life at times. The space we try to create between the two, it's not, it's not always a, a bad thing. Some of you work jobs that are difficult and, and are stressful, and, and so you begin to compartmentalize that job away from everything else. It's kind of, it seems like the only way that you can really survive is to do that. There's me, and then there's work me over here from nine to five, five days a week. But there are negative consequences as well to compartmentalizing stuff. Specifically for the Christian, there can be. When we divide work from the rest of our lives, we risk dividing Christ from our work life. We're Christians on Sundays, maybe we're Christians at home, but Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, well, that's business. It's not to say that anything goes. We have our morals right. We have things that we wouldn't do in our work environment. But mostly Jesus becomes irrelevant, doesn't have anything to say about our work. Or worse yet, we think, we think that perhaps intentionally following Christ in our work life may actually hurt our productivity, may actually hurt our popularity may actually hurt our opportunities for promotion. And so we begin to justify ourselves. I know that doing that or saying that isn't technically Christ-like, but you don't understand the culture I work in, right? That's just how we do things here. That's just how we talk here. I'm, actually, I'm much better than most. If you knew how much better I was than everyone else I worked with, you wouldn't be saying anything. That's just what it takes to survive in my line of work. I've heard all the excuses. I've said all the excuses. Believe it or not, I've not been a pastor my entire life. I did, I did do other things for work at one point. As we've gone through this book of Thessalonians, and this is, this is it. This is the end of our journey through 2 Thessalonians. Next week, we will start a series in Genesis. I'm really excited about it, uh, and it'll be really easy for Coleman to tell you what page to turn again, because it's page one. So, you know, that'll make it simple. But um, as we finish this journey through Thessalonians... We've had one consistent theme throughout. It's this phrase, the destination shapes 
the journey, right? Who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, where we are headed eternally because of that, it should shape the way that we go about our lives day in and day out. It should shape the way we go about our lives today. Not just today, like Sunday morning, but today, like every day. The Bible gives us no exceptions. We will stand before Christ one day, and we will give an account for everything that we have said and done, and that includes the things that we say and we do at our work. Work, it seems, was an issue for the Thessalonians because Paul concludes the book speaking specifically about work. He spoke specifically at the end of 1 Thessalonians about their work life, and then he speaks even more here in 2 Thessalonians about it. Apparently, the issue hadn't gotten better. Paul concludes his letter speaking emphatically about their work life. And I will argue this morning that his main point here about work is this, that our work should be shaped by God's work for us. That our work, day in and day out, should be shaped by God's work for us. And we're going to look at three commands to keep us working for Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll look at these commands. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to get together this morning, that we could even do this. And I thank you for the rain, and I thank you that it's dying down right now for the time being. Lord, thanks for blessing us so much. Thanks for blessing so many of us with the opportunity to work even in a trying and difficult time uh, that we're in right now for these last few months. Pray that we would maintain hearts of gratitude even when our work uh, life is changed by, um, by COVID and by uh, just different uh, precautions that the government and, and employers are, are putting in place. God, that we would maintain hearts of gratitude that you have blessed us with jobs where we can earn money and we can provide for our families. Thank you so much. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So the first command that we see Paul talking about in this section of 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to phrase it this way. Uh, work to distance from Christians who distance Christ from their work. Work to distance from Christians who distance Christ from their work. Now, you hear that, I hear that, and I think, ooh, are we really? I should, I should really distance myself from other believers? Well, this command is... First of all, specifically to believers about other believers. I want to be clear about that. In verse 6, we see the word brothers used twice. And the word brothers in the Greek can mean either brothers like just like actual brothers like two dudes, or it can mean brothers and sisters. And that is how Paul's using it here. And he uses it for all of those who are also Christ followers, all of those who have been adopted into God's family through Christ. And this is important because this command that he's giving both at the beginning of this 
section and also repeating again at the end of this section is for Christians specifically about other Christians. And the command itself is simple. Keep away. Christians keep away from other Christians who work like this. Paul apparently is ahead of his time in mandating social distance orders. Except his social distance orders aren't just physical distance orders. They are actually, literally, social distance orders. What he's saying is, these people, don't, don't allow them to be part of your church as if they're just... You're just accepting like you're a Christian and you're acting this way. That's the, the emphasis that Paul's putting on how bad this conduct is. Let me, let me give you a cross-reference. Paul uses the exact same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, when he commands the Corinthian church in this way. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not to associate. He's talking the same exact command here. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What Paul is saying is if someone claims to be a believer who calls themselves a Christian, has been in your church saying, yeah, I'm a part of this church and I'm a Christ follower, but he's living in known, habitual, and public sin, unrepentant sin. Meaning, it's not like, oh, I just did this thing and oh, I'm really sorry and crud, I'll, I'll not do that again, but, but I'm doing it and I know and I don't care what anyone says then you ought not to associate with that person. You ought not to say, yeah, that person's a part of our church, they're a Christian, yada, yada. They, I don't know, they're not acting like a Christian. And actually keep away from them. Those were the issues in the Corinthian church and they would be valid for us today and they would have been valid for the Thessalonians. But the Thessalonians' issue was different. Their specific issue that they were struggling with had to do with work. Some of those who claimed Christ and were part of the Thessalonian church were, quote, walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Walking here is a term in the Greek that references a way of life, a manner of living from day to day. Idleness, it actually comes from the word that literally means disorderly. And so, what he's saying is if these people's work life is disordered and they are habitually disordered, it's public, it's they don't want to change, then you should keep away from them. What does it mean when it says disordered? I think the rest of that phrase gives us 
the answer, not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. The tradition here isn't a reference to any extra biblical ideas. It, what it is, it's, it's a word that's encompassing the content of Paul's teaching, the gospel message and the implications and applications of that gospel message. And so if someone is ordering their work life in a way that is contrary, is in opposition to, is not in accord with the gospel and what the gospel says and what, what is implied in it and how it should be applied to our lives, then Paul is saying that person is in known sin, is unrepentant, and Matthew 18 applies and you should put that person outside of your fellowship. You should not say, yeah, that person's a believer. We affirm that as a church. Because they are not in any way acting as a believer would act. They're not bearing the fruit that a believer would bear. So why, though, you might ask, is if the word means disorderly, why is it translated in our Bible idleness? Well, the context, context determines meaning. When you use a word, context determines the specific meaning of that word. And as we'll see as we continue to read this passage, Paul is clearly talking about their work life or their lack of work life in this example. So you could summarize the issue like this. A Christian's work life ought to reflect the work of Christ's life. In the same way that we would say, hey, we are called to become more like Christ, we're called to act more like Christ in our everyday life, in, our, in who we are, so too, Paul says, that applies to your job as well, just as much as it applies to anywhere else. Your work life is not exempt from the lordship of Christ over you. You understand that when you come to Christ, you are saying, Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord, meaning he's the king over my life. He, if, if my life has a throne room, he's sitting on the throne and I'm off somewhere else. I don't sit on the throne and Jesus comes to me and says, hey, Cody, like, hey, would you do this? And oh, okay, I guess I'll do that this time, Jesus. No, I get myself off the throne and I put Jesus on there instead. And that includes your work. That includes what job you take, where you take it, when you take it, how long you're working, how you go about your work. It includes everything. Jesus expects obedience. Likewise, Likewise, and I want you to get this because Paul is saying this so clear, emphatically, and he repeats it. Likewise, your job isn't exempt from accountability to other believers for how you go about your work. Other Christians that you are in fellowship with should be speaking into the way you work, whether or not it reflects Christ. And when another Christian says, hey man, I don't think that the way you're working here reflects Christ, you ought to listen. Because that's what Paul commands them to do. In fact, you ought to be thankful that they would care enough about you, and your relationship with Christ, and the way that you reflect Christ to the world, that they would speak into your life in that way. That they would risk 
right? Because it's a risk when you speak to someone else and you say, hey, I think something might be off here in your life. That is a relational risk. You risk being attacked back. And so you ought to be thankful that this person was willing to risk enough to hold you accountable. And again, I'm not just speaking to those who work outside of the home, man. Stay-at-home moms, listen, it is, not, it is not patronizing to say that your job is of critical importance. Like, I'm tired. This is this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step over here onto my soapbox, all right? I just want you to know that's what I'm doing. I am tired of stay-at-home moms who discount what they do in life because they're staying at home. That is garbage. Biblically, that is garbage. Okay? Now, if you work outside of the home, great. That is okay. You have freedom to do that in Christ. But if you are a stay-at-home mom, your job is of critical importance. If you, di- uh, if you discount it, what you're saying is the people out there that I would have been working with are more important than the people in my house, my children, that I get to work with every single day. That's ridiculous. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Listen, I, I, think, I was thinking about this this week. I'm 36. I'm 36 years old. And I'm probably just now getting to a place where I have spent less time with my mom than anyone else in my life. Think about that. Hours. Think about that, moms. It's taken me that many years for someone else, for my wife even, to surpass my mom in hours spent together. So how, do, how, how should this work? Command number two gives us a basic framework. And, I'll, and I'm going to phrase it like this. Neither be idle, I-D-L-E, idle in your work, nor make work an idol, I-D-O-L. See what I did there? Yeah, you like that. Neither be idle in work, nor make work an idol. Uh, Martin Luther had this illustration. He said that um, uh, human nature is like a drunk riding a horse. Like, what in the world? What are you talking about, Martin Luther? Human nature is like a drunk riding a horse. If he falls off one side and you help him back on, he'll fall off the other side, right? You get the picture in your, in your mind. Satan doesn't care. Listen, Satan doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off. He just doesn't want you in the saddle anymore. Work life that isn't ordered by the gospel can fall off two sides of the saddle. On one side, we may take advantage of the charity of people that that they have been commanded to take care of others by Christ. We may take advantage of the promise that Christ gives us that God will take care of us, resulting in an idleness or a laziness in work. That's one side of the saddle, right? That's one side of the horse. On the other side of the horse... We can become so consumed in our work, we can idolize our performance or what people think about us or our position so much, we can idolize even providing for our families. Listen, listen, church, right? 
We can idolize even providing for our families to an extent that we're providing, we're working to provide things that we think that they need when really what they need is us to be home more. Really what they need is us to be engaged with them rather than engaged mentally, emotionally, physically with our work life. Paul tells the Thessalonians to consider his example when he lived among them for just a few weeks. He was not idle and he went to work paying for his bread, it says. Now, I want to be clear, I do not believe I do not believe that this means that Paul did not accept any hospitality from people when he was in, in Thessalonica, nor do I believe that, it, that we should not accept hospitality from others or, or give hospitality to others. I think that that goes counter so many other texts in Scripture. Bread here, bread here refers to our basic daily needs. What Paul is saying is he worked enough to provide for his necessities, while he was in Thessalonica. He toiled night and day to do that because as a single man carrying on a full-time ministry, he also worked a full-time job to provide for himself. You understand the work that he did. So the question comes up then, does this mean that all pastors or all missionaries ought to be co-vocational? They ought to work a job, and they ought to also work in the church. And, and Paul himself, he denies this as a blanket rule for every single person, or even for himself in all situations. Verse 9 says, it was not because, it was not because I didn't have a right, he says. It was not because he didn't have the right to be paid for the ministry he did amongst them that he didn't get paid, that he worked to provide for himself. And when Paul says right here, he's not speaking in hyperbole. He means that it was his right under God, by God, to be paid for the ministry that he did. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Timothy as well. 1 Timothy 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 9.9 make it very, very clear. It wasn't, it wasn't that Paul couldn't be paid. It was that he willingly decided not to be paid in Thessalonica. Why? Why would that be? Why would Paul get, receive funds in places like Ephesus and Corinth, but yet in Thessalonica, he worked for his living? And I think this is how the gospel really applies to our lives. Though Paul had the right for support, his highest priority in everything that he did was proclaiming the gospel. His highest priority was not getting support. And so when he came to Thessalonica, and he came to a place where, historically, there was a system of patronage that existed, where poor clients would receive funds from wealthy benefactors, wealthy patrons. And oftentimes, in exchange for those gifts, there would be an expectation that the client, the, the, the poor person that was receiving, would do certain things or support certain things that the wealthy patron supported. And so you can understand in a place like Thessalonica, if Paul came in and received support, they, it may call into question his motivation for sharing 
the gospel in the first place. And so he walks into a city like that and he says, nope, in this city, for the sake of the gospel, I will not be paid because I don't want anyone to question the gospel message. And so I'm going to go to work and, I, and then I'm going to spend my evening hours sharing the gospel and we're going to make this this happened. Actually, probably he spent his afternoon hours sharing the gospel because he probably took a break from work in the hottest part of the day, but whatever. In verse 11, it says, of these people, these, these people who would be receiving funds, it says not to be, bu- they're not busy at work, but they're busy bodies. Not meaning that they just had too much time on their hands and and they were bothering people, and they were getting up in other people's business. But the word here actually means that they were, they were meddling in things. They were meddling in things that were not actually their concern and would not have been their concern if they hadn't been in the position that they're in. And so this system, this system would place clients in a situation where they would have to do sinful things or support sinful positions, positions that would be against the gospel, against the Bible against Paul's teaching, and they would have to do so publicly because they needed to take that position in order to receive their bread. So Paul, foreseeing that, doesn't participate in receiving any benefits, even if those benefits aren't according to that system. Verse 10, it strengthens the point. It says, if you're unwilling to work, then you shouldn't eat. Paul says, hey, look, I told you. When I was there, I told you. I commanded you. If you're unwilling to work, you shouldn't eat. You shouldn't, someone else shouldn't give you your daily bread. Now, I want to note something here, because I want there to be no confusion. Paul is not saying, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. He's saying, if you're unwilling to work. And that's an important distinction, because there are times, and, and all of us have experienced this, where... We don't have a job and we don't have means. I remember when Man and I were first married early on, there was a, I was working as a school bus driver. And there was this short period of time right after we got married in the summer when, when uh, summer school ended and the school year hadn't begun where I didn't have a job for a few weeks, for about a month and a half. And I remember a friend in the church said, hey, I, I've, I've got, uh, I, he owned his own construction business, and he said, hey, do you know anything about construction? I said, no, I absolutely know, any, I, I know what a, a hammer is. It's like, okay, we, well, we're not going to have you use one of those. Um, but he, he had me come, and he just had me do random things. And he paid me way more than he ought to have paid me to do things that probably they had to go back and redo after I was finished, Right? So, so I'm sure all of us can think of a time when someone, out of the goodness of their heart, out of motivation, hopefully from the gospel, have, have helped us get through a tough time. And that's different than someone who is just unwilling to work, unwilling to do anything, and, and expects to receive as well. And I want to give a really clear and relevant example for today. And I don't know that this, I don't, I am not aware of anyone that this necessarily particularly applies to in, in our church, but, but I think it's a, it's a good example. With the CARES Act that was passed in the spring and that has just 
ended. Many people have received more money on unemployment, or at least some people have received more money on unemployment than if they had been working. Now, our feelings, or your feelings, or my feelings about that economically and politically, well, I'll put aside for a second, because I really don't care about that part for the purposes this morning. I think there's pros and cons to everything that, any option that we had at that point. We wouldn't call that bill sinful, nor would we call it inherently sinful if you applied for, if you were unemployed and you applied for unemployment and you received unemployment. And even if you received unemployment that exceeded the amount of money that you made, that's not sinful. Like that's the way it, you pay your taxes and that's the way that they passed it and that's what you received. It's not, something wrong with that. Here's where this passage particularly applies to our life. If you are unwilling to work and unwilling to look for a job and unwilling to apply for jobs because you would rather take the unemployment money than work because you could get paid more for being unemployed than for working, you are in sin, period. That is sinful, according to this text. There is no two ways around it. If you are unwilling to work, because I can receive more money not working than going and getting a job, that is not ordering your life according to the gospel. Other Christians should confront you on it. You're not representing Christ as you ought. It is unjust to all the other people who are working and paying taxes, period. It gives Christ a bad name in the world. Paul quite clearly says, if they won't get a job, keep away from them. On the other side of the issue, for those of you who make work into an idol, if you are tempted, friends, listen, and this probably applies to more of us than the other. If you are tempted to do something that goes against the gospel, if you're tempted to do something that is sin in order to benefit your bottom line at work or in order to fast track yourself to a promotion or whatever, you are just falling off the other side of the horse. It's unjust to your market competitors. It's unjust to your fellow employees, your coworkers who are also competing for those promotions for you to do that in a sinful way. And it does not matter. The Bible does not say, well, but if everyone else is doing it, then you can. No, you're a Christian. You're a Christian. And that should mean something. And it should mean something at work too. It means that, that you frame your life according to Christ's commands. And if everyone else is doing it, if it's opposed to Christ, then you don't. That's it. That's it. Jesus isn't concerned with whether or not that's just how business is done in your industry. He's concerned with how business is done in his kingdom. And if you're a Christ follower, you are in his kingdom. 
And listen, this is what the gospel speaks to, right? Because the gospel solves both these issues. If you're idle in your work, then Christ's work for you coming to earth when he didn't need to, giving up being at the right hand of God, right? Taking on human flesh, living to serve, not to be served, ought to motivate you to work hard in everything that you do. And yet, if you idolize work, the gospel also speaks to that. Because listen, your value as a human being does not come from your performance or what anyone thinks about you, even what your boss thinks about you or your coworkers or anyone. Your value comes from what Christ has done for you on the cross, saving you and allowing you to be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters of the Lord. And there's nothing, there's no promotion that's better than that promotion. There's no promotion at work that's worth mocking the promotion that God has given you into his family. And that is exactly what you're doing. You're mocking it. Paul's command in verse 12 It's equally relevant to both sides. He says, work quietly. Literally, settle down and just get to work. Earn your living. Earn your bread in the Greek. Don't cut corners. Don't sin. Don't cheat others. Do it fair and square. Be a good employee. Work hard. Get along with your coworkers. And in the process, earn the respect of others. Not merely earning their respect for yourself, but earning their respect for Christ. For Christ's sake. Christians ought to, church, we ought to have a reputation in the public square as the most consistently hardworking and team-oriented employees that exist. Like, it, it should be known in the public square, you want to hire a Christian because they'll tend to be the most hardworking and they'll tend to get along with their coworkers the most. That ought to be true. Like, just... Hands down, that ought to be true. So the final command is this. Don't allow others' idleness to make you idle in doing good. Paul has commanded the idle uh, to work, to not be lazy, and for the church to not support someone who's unwilling to work. But But he also understands that there's a temptation there then for the church to fall off the other side to hear his commands, and to excuse stopping helping people that they ought to help, right? For fear that someone might take advantage of them. You've been taken advantage of before, haven't you? You've done something for someone. You've given something to someone. You've served someone. And then later on realized, oh, they totally took advantage of me. It sucks. Does that not feel just like a kick in the gut? Man, and pride kicks in. And you tell yourself, I'm never, trick me once, shame on you, trick me twice, shame on me, right? I'm, I'm, you put, begin to put the walls up, I'm never going to allow that to happen again. It feels like the worst thing that could happen to you, but it's not. Listen, it's not the worst thing. Jesus tells us the worst thing in Matthew 25. Here's what, here's what he says. He says, depart from me. He said to those 
who were not going to heaven, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. The destination, friends, will shape the journey. When Christ becomes the satisfaction to our true hunger, the quenching of our true thirst, the belonging in our deepest loneliness, his clothing, that we're clothed in his righteousness instead of naked in our own shame and freed from the prison of our own sin, the more you realize those things that you have in Christ, the more you want to do that for someone else. The more you're motivated to serve others. Part of that good service is to help those who are truly needy. And part of that good service is to confront those who are idle. Understand, when Paul says don't stop being good, he also means don't give up correcting your believers, your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters whom you love, correcting them to follow Christ better, helping them, saving them from their sin that they're in. And so Paul comes back to the very thing that he opened the passage with. And I tell you what, when you have a section of scripture that opens with the command and closes with the exact same command, uh, it's important. It's important. And he says, do not neglect to warn and correct other believers. It's, see, it's easier to toss a, a fellow believer, a fellow brother and sister in Christ who's caught in sin and, and won't come out of that sin. It's easier to toss them aside and treat them as an enemy, treat them poorly, to criticize them, which, which often, let's be honest, satisfies our pride, than to actually take the time to correct and try to restore them back to Christ. It's easier, on the other side, to just ignore it, to not deal with it, to allow them to stay in their sin, and just, whatever, I'm going to turn a blind eye to this, rather than to put yourself in the line of fire and perhaps take shots back from them. It's easier. I get it. I've been there. I've, I've done that. But neither of those responses is actually doing good. It may feel good for us in the moment. It may feel good to the idle believer to be left alone and to be allowed to, be, to remain lazy and to be allowed to continue to mooch off other people. But if we believe what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, that the will of God, the will of God for us is our sanctification, then helping a fellow believer walk according to the gospel and to please God with their life, including their work life, is truly the best thing for them, period. It's better than the promotion, it's better than sitting at home and watching TV and Netflix and playing video games all day. It's better. It's better for them. It's better for God's kingdom. And so Paul concludes this letter. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Paul's prayer is that the Lord who, who has brought us peace with God by the cross would give us peace, not just internal peace, but peace with one another, peace with other believers, peace with the city that is persecuting the Thessalonians, peace within a church community where we may have people that are taking advantage of others and people that we have to confront. Peace in our work lives where representing Christ and acting like Christ may put us on the wrong 
side of someone's opinion. And he prays for the Lord to be with them all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It reminds us that no matter what is happening around us, our biggest problem is our need for peace with God and the solution is the grace of Jesus Christ. And if we have that, then we can deal with all that other lack of peace. It is only by Christ and through his grace, friends, that true peace will ever come to the world. You see, we're flawed. We mess it up all the time. And I know you've probably been like me and you've fallen on, on both sides of this horse, man. I, I, I've, I've been on, off the saddle both ways, probably more often than I've been on the saddle, to tell you the truth. But Christ's work, his service, it is flawless. And when you fall off the saddle, his grace is enough. And he forgives you. And your brothers and your sisters, they help you to get back up on that saddle. Lord, would that be true of us, God? Lord, that, the, that, that our destination, that our, that, 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 that our future, looking forward to being with you, being with the one who would do such work as to be nailed on the cross for us, that it would shape our journey right now today. God, would you, would, would your cross, would, would your son always be ever in our view so that everything that we do might be focused on reflecting that? Thank you, and I pray all this in your name. Amen.